Our sermon passage this morning is Matthew 7, 1 through 14. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see that speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Amen. You may be seated. Father, we're grateful for your love to us. In Jesus Christ, you have displayed that love, and we are the beneficiaries of uh, the intense, all-encompassing, never-ending, all-sin-forgiving love of God through Jesus Christ. So we come together this morning as brothers and sisters in Christ redeemed by his blood and given the hope of eternity together, we rejoice in this gospel. We confess together that you are enthroned on high. We come submitting our lives before you, and even as we open your word together and hear the words of Christ, the Holy Spirit speaking to us afresh this morning, we submit ourselves to you. We give ourselves to you and ask that you would take us Make us more like the life and love of your dear son and all that we say and do. So we pray for these things together in Christ's name. Amen. It's wonderful for us to be with you this morning. My wife is here and uh, our two daughters, uh, Olivia and Meredith, are six and four. Uh, we've been in Nashville for a couple years now and uh, moved here right in the middle of the pandemic. But we're in a, a family of churches along with you. Uh, and uh, Jamie and LJ and Austin have been such an encouragement to me personally. And you all as a congregation have financially supported and, uh, and prayed for Westwood. And as a church, we are so grateful uh, for that. So here's a church that just a few years ago was declining and dying and uh, kind of at the end of its lifespan as a church. And by God's grace, now a couple years later, you know, that, that kind of trend is being reversed and you all are a part of that. And I'm so thankful uh, that we have been able to come uh, to Nashville and such a huge part of that that uh, the, the blessing for us has been the connection to this family of churches that um, Redeemer and Grace Community down in Nashville and, uh, and Edgefield and other churches that have just been great partners uh, in the gospel uh, for the sake of renewing and uh, seeing God's work continue at Westwood. So uh, to be here this morning, I'm grateful uh, Jamie's on sabbatical for no other reason than for the chance that I have uh, to be with you all this morning. 
Uh, as a church, you have been in the Sermon on the Mount for the past several weeks, and uh, this sermon that Jesus preached spans chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew's Gospel. Uh, Jesus opens up uh, with the Beatitudes, this kind of beautiful vision of the blessed life, the truly happy life, the, the good life. It's as if he's using words to paint a picture of the kingdom of heaven for us. So we have this beautiful painting before us uh, of what the kingdom of heaven looks like. And the culture of the kingdom is totally different. It completely upends the value systems of the world. The world has its kings and presidents and prime ministers, and they're rich and powerful, and so people respect them, but there is a king who rules over them, and he is our true king. Uh, sure, we submit to government, but our trust is not in them, whether they're bad or even if they're good, our trust is in God, and he is our king, and our submission to him is what defines the kingdom of God. He is enthroned on high, and so we submit to him. And it's that submittedness, that happy delight in God's reign that creates a whole new culture, uh, a culture that's totally upside down. Greatness is not ruling over, uh, but now greatness is stooping down and serving. Uh, the last will be first and the first last. He who would be great among you must be servant of all. So the Sermon on the Mount presents this upside-down living where the key virtue is basically self-renunciation. Die to yourself. Uh, don't indulge your anger. Don't indulge your lusts. Don't indulge your desire to promote yourself before others. Don't pursue wealth. Don't indulge your physical appetite. And, and on and on, it's dying to yourself. So the German pastor during World War II, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, put it, uh, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Such is the bracing reality of Christ's call to discipleship. So in that context, the Sermon on the Mount is a call to discipleship. Uh, we approach this morning verses 1 through 14 of chapter 7. Uh, some of the most quoted, perhaps misquoted, or misinterpreted and misunderstood passages in the Bible are in uh, this section. If we had a list of the top 10 verses that get misinterpreted, uh, I think maybe two of those top 10 would be in this passage we're looking at this morning. Uh, two of those most misunderstood passages might be, don't judge, and then ask, and it will be given to you. And part of the reason they're so misunderstood, sometimes twisted or taken out of context, is because they're taken as isolated statements uh, rather than understood within the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, just as you can't really understand a person without understanding something of their background, their history, their relationships, and their family, so you can't understand any uh, verse or phrase in Scripture without understanding something of the context in which it's given. So what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 1 through 14, all fits together. Don't judge, ask the Father, and do to others. Three points of guidance for the way that followers of Jesus are to relate to God and to uh, one another. Uh, this is a, a relational guide uh, for Christians. So first, Jesus says, judge not. Jesus states the main principle there in verse 1. He states it concisely. Judge not that you be not judged. 
Now, if we take verse 12 as a sort of summary statement, both of this section as well as a summary statement of the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Well, then we can see verses 1 through 6 as an example of that principle. You know, you would not want others to judge you harshly. So don't give harsh judgment toward them. That's the logic of verses 1 and 2. Judge not, but the reason not to judge is because of the reciprocal nature of it. It will come back to you so that you not be judged. You see that there in verse 2. Uh, And then he starts with this little word, verse 2, for, indicating that verse 2 is a further explanation of verse 1. And verse 2 says, for, with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Uh, You will be judged as you judge. So often our judgments or criticisms of others end up being self-condemning. We accuse someone else But if we applied that accusation to ourselves, we're also guilty. What we find offensive in others, uh, we hardly see in ourselves. It's like halitosis, you know, bad breath. Uh, We cringe when we smell someone else's bad breath. But you never notice your own, even if you wore masks all through COVID, you know, you hardly ever even notice that. Some people call it psychological projection where we misinterpret something that's actually inside of us as if it's coming from outside of us, from others. It's the proverbial pot calling the kettle black. So these verses are calling us not to do what we wouldn't want them to do to us. These words, don't judge, again, may be two of the most popularly quoted words from Jesus, but might also be some of the most misinterpreted Uh, and twisted uh, uh, words of Jesus. Everybody loves to recall how Jesus said, don't judge, but it's usually uh, employed as a kind of self-defense mechanism. Uh, So what if I'm cheating on my spouse? Who are you to judge? Uh, Let me do what I want. Don't challenge me. Who are you to cast the first stone? Or Leo Tolstoy, in his typical uh, hypocritical literalism, saw this verse as support to abolish the court systems. You can't judge. It's not Christ-like to condemn, he said. Well, to Tolstoy, I would say this verse is not for governments to apply to their judicial systems. It's for disciples of Jesus to apply to all their relationships. And to those who would defend themselves by demanding that you not judge them, I would say, well, Look at the rest of what Jesus says in these verses. Immediately after this, uh, there in verse 6, Jesus says, Don't give what is holy to dogs. Don't throw your pearls before pigs. So you have to judge, uh, who are the dogs and pigs? Uh, There must be some kind of assessment. And again in verses 15 through 20, uh, you see he talks about false prophets. He says there are good trees and there are bad trees, and they can be discerned, By their fruits. You will recognize them by their fruits. He says that twice. So you be the judge. Look at the fruit. You discern what's there. Uh, Is it good or or is it bad? You you can judge. Or to use a different word, you can assess. You can discern or distinguish. So, So there you have not just permission, but actually a positive command. 
uh, that you must judge or else you will be deceived by these false prophets or false professors. We even recognize that there's wisdom in this. We may say that a, a, a wise person is a good judge of character. So Jesus is not calling us to suspend our critical faculties. He's saying, don't be an accuser. Some people, it's almost like they take delight in accusing and pointing out other people's faults. Don't be that person. Oftentimes when I hear someone say that they have the gift of discernment, I think that sometimes what they really mean is they have the gift of criticism. Uh, They love to criticize other people. And I don't say that because discernment is bad. Again, Jesus calls us to be discerning. Uh, But sometimes uh, our discernment degenerates down into criticism. I think the difference is one of the heart. What is the heart of the one making the assessment? Do you delight in someone else's failings such that you love to criticize? You're almost eager to find fault. It makes you feel justified and better about yourself that you can cut another person down to size. You you can sleep well at night knowing that you have successfully litigated against all the wrongdoers in your life, except for yourself, of course. It's that self-righteous heart of stone that Jesus is trying to dislodge in this command and to call us instead to the way of love. Proverbs 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. 1 Peter 4, verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, for love covers a multitude of sins. A judgmental spirit loves to uncover and expose sins for all to see. But a loving spirit covers others' sins, bringing forgiveness and healing. So in one sense, while he says, judge not, what Jesus is calling us to do is to judge rightly, to be discerning with love. If you listen with an honest ear to what he's saying, I think you'll agree that what he calls us to is to judge, but judge yourself first, and then judge others the way you would want to be judged, out of a spirit of love and humility. Okay, so if you are a critical, (laughs) accusing kind of person, what could you do about this? How do you remedy that accusing heart? Well, the main solution Jesus gives to this problem, the key way to avoid being a harsh, judgmental person is there in verse 5. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. So, whenever you see sins in another person, whenever you're about to launch into accusation against that person for their sins, just take that as a moment uh, to do some soul-searching to look in the mirror, uh, to ask yourself, where do I see these same sins in myself? Instead of going after them, humble yourself before God. Maybe you would find after uh, some honest self-reflection that's 
what's most needed may not be confrontation of their sin, uh, but rather confession of your own sins. One particular realm of application for this passage is in the matter of personal conflicts. You know, so often when there's conflict or, or tension in a relationship, each party in the conflict uh, starts by pointing fingers at the other. We won't begin to find peace in conflict until we begin asking the tough question, how can I own my part in this conflict? There's a wonderful little book that would fit in your back pocket called Resolving Everyday Conflict by Ken Sandy. And Ken Sandy says sometimes it may feel like you have very little to own in the conflict, but own all of that little. Even if you're only 2% responsible for a conflict, own 100% of that 2%. Confessing your fault to the person you offended is the way you fully own your part in the conflict. So acknowledge your own sins. That's what Jesus calls us to here in this uh, image of the log and the speck. And then a, a second realm in which to apply this rule is in the way that we speak about others. As you evaluate the, the bulk of your conversation over the course of a week, just ask yourself, is it largely critical and negative about others? That usually corresponds to a lack of humility or a lack of self-critique. Uh, maybe ask a couple of the people that you talk with most in a given week, maybe the person sitting next to you, uh, what they think about your conversation. If they think of you as a critical person, if they think of you as someone who's largely negative. D.A. Carson said, persistent negativism is spiritually perilous. The person who makes it his life's ambition to discover all the things that are wrong with others is exposing himself to spiritual destruction. Sustained negativism is highly calorific nourishment for pride. That's an insightful way of restating what Jesus says here. Don't be the accuser. That's Satan's name. Leave it to him. Judge not that you be not judged. There's a second relational dynamic described in these verses, uh, verses 7 through 11. So if verses 1 through 6 show us uh, not to judge in relationship to others, uh, then verses 7 through 11 show us how to ask of God in relationship to him. So first, judge not. And now, secondly, ask the Father. Ask the Father. Verse 7, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? 
So ask. It's very simple. Uh, This is one of the main elements of prayer. The Bible describes all kinds of prayers. There are prayers of uh, supplication. There are prayers of adoration, prayers of confession, prayers of thanksgiving. You know, if all that you ever do in prayer is ask for things, then your prayers are immature. They're not fully formed by Scripture. And yet, when we are in need of something, we are to ask. That is the language of prayer in the time of need. Asking is the essence of our prayers. Seeking his help. That's the next word, seek goes beyond asking. Now now we're searching for what God's answer may be, seeking to know his will in Scripture, seeking his help and earnestly coming before him. And then knock. We're asking and seeking. Now it involves the body. We, we go to him almost banging on the door. Lord, I need you. Please open up quickly. Ask. Seek. Knock. He will respond. That's the promise. It it will be given to you. You will find. It reminds us uh, just what is it that we will find? Uh, What is it that will be given to us? Uh, What is it that we're to ask the Father for? Uh, What is it that the Father is happy to give us? Does he obligate himself by this promise to give us just anything that we ask for? Well, no. I think that is sometimes how this passage is misunderstood. In fact, in verses 9 and 10, he makes this comparison to earthly moms and dads. He says, which one of you, uh, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? You wouldn't give him those things. Even if he asked for it, you wouldn't give him a serpent or a stone. Uh, you wouldn't do that. Your, your Father in heaven, likewise, delights to give you good things. He gives good things to those who ask him. He won't give you just anything and everything you might ask for. He delights to give you good things. And he determines what is good and needful for you as you ask and seek and knock. Well, what should occupy our request then? And I think what should occupy our request is primarily uh, that we might live in all the ways that Jesus has been teaching throughout the Sermon on the Mount. That we might live in wisdom. You remember the story of Solomon in 1 Kings. Uh, that Solomon was given this same uh, command, ask, and the same promise. It will be given to you. And Solomon pleased God by asking for wisdom. And we have it as a promise to us that the same will be done in our case. So James 1 says, ask. If you lack wisdom, ask the Father who has all wisdom and gives generously without reproach to those who seek him for it. And so we are taught what we ought to ask for. Uh, We should ask to uh, live in the ways that Jesus calls us to in the Sermon on the Mount. The demands of the Sermon on the Mount are beyond what any of us are able to do. Uh, As Jesus, here in these verses, is bringing the body of the sermon to a close, he reminds his followers 
that if they are to live out this new lifestyle of the kingdom, then they must be completely dependent on the Father's enabling help. That's the specific context of this call to prayer. Anyone who has tried to embody the Beatitudes, anyone who has tried to have a zero tolerance for anger and lust and lying, anyone who has tried to love difficult people or uh, to do good works but without a self-promoting motive, anyone who has tried to avoid greed, anyone who has tried to avoid anxiety, anyone who has tried to do all of these things that Jesus calls us to in the sermon will surely have come face to face with their own inability. We can't do it. Jesus calls us to live perfectly. Matthew 5, verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How could you live up to that? So what are we to do? We're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, but it's hard. How are we, helpless as we are, to respond? Ask, and it will be given you. Seek, you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Thus was Augustine, the great church father of the fourth century, taught to pray. My whole hope is in your exceeding great mercy and that alone. Grant what thou dost command and command what thou wilt. What God has rightly commanded us in the Sermon on the Mount, God alone will enable us to do. Verse 11, your Father who is in heaven. You may remember uh, that this title for our Father occurred twice in the previous paragraph that you looked at last week, Your Heavenly Father. And it occurs more than that. Earlier in chapter 6, Your Heavenly Father knows what you need, which Jesus had stressed in calling us not to worry. Uh, So when it comes to prayer, uh, God is not up in heaven, ignorant of your situation and distant and unconcerned for you, uh, but rather he is uh, waiting for you to come to him as a, a child to his good father um, because this is the father's way of training his family, that through prayer uh, we might come to know him. Through prayer we might come to look more like the son. And so the most important thing that we're to walk away with from this encouragement, this call to pray, is not the thought that if you pray enough, God will do whatever you want, some superstitious way. You know, maybe if I had prayed 43 times instead of 28 times, maybe then God would have granted this request. Or if I had only gotten 20 prayer partners to pray with me instead of only nine, uh, maybe then this would have been successful. No, prayer doesn't work by pressure formulas like that. God does not have to be twisted into doing something good for you. So we should pray always, and we should pray together, but Overwhelming the Father with sheer quantity or volume of our prayers is not the point. No, what's most important for us to walk away with uh, from these verses is 
the picture of God that we have in our heads when we go to him in prayer. That we relate to God as dependent children toward a good father. J.I. Packer said, what is a Christian? Uh, The Christian is one who knows God as father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and his prayers and his whole outlook on life, then it means he doesn't understand Christianity very well at all. What it means to be a Christian is to know God as father and to relate to him as a good father. We want to be so taken up in the fact that we are beloved children of the good father that we're drawn by that recognition into asking him, seeking him. I long for that to become incrementally more true of me and you, that as individuals and that as churches we would be marked by and growing in dependent prayer to our good father. Now, having given guidance in um, two relationships, how to relate to your brother or sister, don't judge, and how to relate to the father, ask, seek, and knock, Jesus comes at last to the comprehensive principle itself. There in verse 12. So the first six verses say, judge not. Verses 7 through 11 tell us, ask the father. And now in verse 12, we come to the overarching principle, which is do to others. Do to others. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is often referred to as the golden rule, and Jesus didn't actually invent this formula. Actually, a a would-be follower of the famous Rabbi Hillel in 20 BC, so that would have been about 50 years before Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, uh, this would-be follower came up to uh, Hillel and asked him uh, to teach the whole law while standing on one leg. Uh, He had asked one of the rival rabbis this same question, and that rabbi, having been unable to answer, sent the inquirer away. But Rabbi Hillel said, what is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. This is the whole law. The rest is just commentary. But what Hillel stated negatively, uh, don't do to others what is hateful to you, Jesus stated positively, do to others whatever you wish they would do to you. It's a positive call to self-sacrificing love in all of our relationships. We are to think of how we wish to be treated. You are to think about how you want to be treated, but not so that you might demand that you might be treated that way, not so that you would claim how unfairly you've been treated by others, but rather when we meditate on how we would like to be treated, it should be with the result that we turn around to treat others that way. There are an exhaustive number of applications for this passage. It describes uh, the whole of our lives, every word we ought to speak, 
every action, every way of inter, uh, relating with others. But there are maybe two main things that we should notice about this verse. First, it is a summary principle. It's a summary principle. Jesus says that it summarizes, it, it is the law and the prophets. That's a massive statement if you stop and think about it. The law and the prophets occupies a fair bit of territory in your Old Testament. It's a lot of pages. And Jesus says, this one principle sort of wraps it all up with a bow on top. You know, this is the one pr- principle that summarizes all of it. It's, it's a key ethical principle. If you have children, uh, you know, this is a key ethical principle that they, uh, if they leave the home, should have this uh, principle deeply embedded in their conscience. It's a massive statement. It summarizes the Old Testament, but also uh, it sits here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount and summarizes the whole way of living that Jesus is calling us to. Many commands and instructions in Matthew 5 through 7. And here is one that summarizes them all. So it's a summary principle. And then a second observation about this verse is that Jesus fulfills this principle. It's worth noting that back in chapter 5, verse 17, which is sort of the gateway into the body of the Sermon on the Mount, right there at the beginning of the sermon, Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Well, now in verse 12, which concludes the body of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. This is uh, the law and the prophets. So Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. This principle fulfills the law and the prophets, which reminds us that Jesus embodies this principle as he fulfills the law and the prophets. He is the best and perfect example of doing for others as you would have them do unto you. So if we're to see what this principle looks like lived out, then we must look at the life of Jesus Christ and especially at the cross on which he died. Jesus considered your interests more significant And so he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the whole point of that death on the cross was to forgive all of those who listen to the Sermon on the Mount but are incapable of doing all that Jesus calls us to do. If you've listened to this whole sermon carefully, then you could almost feel all these commands and the crushing weight of them, the obligation of them on you. We can't live up to it. But the cross of Jesus Christ reminds us that we strive for holiness and obedience as those who have been forgiven, those who have already been brought into the family. We already call God Father, and we seek obedience then out of this place of forgiveness. Jesus died on the cross to bring forgiveness to failures, and so we rest in forgiveness even as we strive for holiness. So even as Jesus calls us uh, to treat others the way we want to be treated, he forgives us 
for all the times that we will fail to do that. And so as he concludes the body of this sermon, he points us uh, to his own great love for us. Well, Then in verses 13 and 14, he invites us uh, to enter onto this pathway. It's a call to respond. Uh, the way is hard. Uh, to live in this way is difficult. And yet all of those who come to Christ and follow him in this path will know his eternal love and forgiveness. It's that love that we seek to reflect in all that we do. And so as we conclude, we ask for the Spirit's help in this. Father, we are grateful that in our moment of need, we can come to you and we find your throne, your throne to which we bow. We call you king and we submit to you in all that we do. We find that throne to be a throne of grace not a throne of condemnation and judgment, though that is what we deserve, but a throne of grace, forgiveness. So we ask that by your Spirit's help, in knowing that forgiveness, we would be driven, compelled, fueled in reflecting this great love of Christ in all that we say and do. We pray all of this by your grace and for your glory.